0: You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Welcome to the Lead to Soar podcast. I'm Mel Butcher, and I'm joined today by author, Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. Suzanne, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here today. Well, We, as the community, are thrilled about your new book, The Inclusive Language Field Guide. And I've got some questions for you today, all about the book and tying it into, in particular, women in the workplace and leaders supporting women. But I want to start high level. So can you talk to us first about your expertise? What is linguistic anthropology? Sure. I'm a former professor of linguistic
1: anthropology. This is not a random question Mel is asking me. So I used to teach at various American universities and then I left to apply the science of linguistic anthropology to bias in the workplace. So a lot of people haven't heard of my field. We've done a very bad job of PR. And people would say, oh, it's so esoteric. And I'm like, oh, do you speak? They're like, yeah. I'm like, do you speak to other people? They're like, yeah. I'm like, do you build relationships with people? And are they in a larger social context? They're like, yeah. I'm like, that's what I study. So basically, linguistic anthropology is a social science that gives me and and my colleagues a toolkit to be very scientific about the analysis of a given interaction, which can be a conversation, an email exchange, a video, a speech, or even ongoing discussions that go on, which we call discourse. And to take an interpersonal interaction and show more precisely what's going on and how it relates to the larger context. So long story short, the intersection of language culture and power, that's what I study. And I show how one word or even a pronunciation of a word can have a really profound impact on a person who's being spoken with or is reading something.
0: It's so fascinating. And that richness really comes through in your book. Why did you have to write this book? (laughs)
1: <laughs> My clients kept on asking me for it is probably the first one. So in fact, the, the book is reverse engineered, right? So before the podcast, you and I were talking a little bit and I was saying how I love to figure things out and then share the information and I'm lucky to have this incredibly useful toolkit of linguistic anthropology that helps me. I almost feel like I've been given x-ray vision, right? It's like a superpower where there are some things that are opaque to people who haven't had the chance to study using the toolkit that I have. And then for me, I feel like I can see right through them. So one thing is that I really wanted to share this knowledge base and the ways that I see the world where there are some patterns that are so clear to me and it's so helpful now that they're so clear. I'm like, well, how can I get other people to see the patterns? But also literally my clients would be like, oh, my recruiters, they keep on misgendering candidates in interviews. They forget candidates can be non-binary and they're driving away talent that I want. Or, oh, my sales team, somebody just lost a, a $4 million deal in the last literally in the last stages because he assumed that their head of IT was male and she was in the room and he was saying, oh, you're IT guy, just, just ask him. And uh... she was sitting here and she closed her book and she crossed her arms and that was the end of that deal. Or uh, just workplace interactions where people, especially people who come from groups who have lifelong experience of what it is like to have biased language, biased behavior against you, those people can see very clearly what the problem is, but they might have a hard time explaining it in a way that lands with other people for whom bias can be very invisible. So I like to tell a lot of the white male execs that I work with that they're at a disadvantage, right? I'm like, you're at a disadvantage because I have had lifelong experience of bias because I'm female. I was assigned female at birth. For those of you who can't see me, which is everybody on the audio, I am ethnically ambiguous. So there are a lot of people who want to know what I am. So literally since the incubator, people have misunderstood what race and ethnicity I am, right? So I have this lifelong experience of people saying things that showed that they thought of me as less than in certain ways. But if you belong to mostly or all dominant groups you might not have that experience. And so my brain, which is great at pattern recognition like every human brain, was able to sort out data into patterns. But for a lot of people, they're really invisible. And so this book is designed to give people insight into the patterns that show up again and again and again across history, across cultures. It's the same patterns again and again and again in language that they can understand with examples that they can understand, most of which are workplace examples, but a lot of this bleeds out into personal life too. And so it was both an answer to clients and a solution to, okay, here's a problem I see out there in the world. How can I address it in the book? And then writing the book to address all the problems that I thought were the most prominent and the most problematic.
0: Okay. We're going to get into some of the specifics on this. My last sort of high level question I, I think I've got here at the beginning is talk to us about how language is like a fungus.
1: Oh, <laughs> sure. So, in my book, oh, I wish I had, I just treated myself in Japantown to some cute pens that look like mushrooms, right? So, I wish I could wave one around now. So, I was just talking about how for a lot of people, some things are invisible, right? And so they don't feel real because if they haven't experienced it, it doesn't feel real. Well, for me, there's a lot of ways that language is discussed in the world in certain ways, that it's not that important, that it's very easy to understand. People will say things like, it's just semantics, which if you have a linguistics degree, I'm like, semantics is meaning. Like people are saying, oh, it's just meaning. Or people, there's, you know, a popular thing when I was raised, people would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, in fact, that's not the case. And people feel like you can look at a word and for example, you can look up a word in a dictionary and we can talk about dictionaries more, but you can look at a word and that it's its own entity that you can remove it from its context and study it. And there it is, you understand everything you need to know about it. But that's not true about words and that's not true about fungi either. So I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Suzanne Simard who was told that her research was too feminine She was looking at why new growth forests didn't do as well as old growth forests. When people would cut down old growth forests and then replant them, trees did not thrive. And so she was like, this is interesting why. And she discovered that underground, there were incredibly enormous, complicated networks, fungal networks, that were connecting trees in old growth forests and that were actually communicating among the trees, communicating this tree needs more of this, this tree needs more of that, exchanging information in a way that the communicative system allowed the forest to thrive. The different kinds of trees and those different kinds of fungi had disappeared from the new growth forest. And scientists who studied fungi out of context, pulling a fungus out of the ground and only looking at it there had completely missed that. And in addition, a lot of people, not people who study fungi, but a lot of people will look at a mushroom and think, oh, that's all there is to it, right? The mushroom is the full entity. But in fact, the mushroom is very often just the fruit of what is underground, incredibly complicated system. So I say language is like a fungus because people look at words and they're like, yeah, I get it. And they think you can pull a word out of context and completely understand it. But someone like me, a linguistic anthropologist, I see us as doing the same kind of work as looking at what's happening in situ, in place with these fungi, looking at complicated networks in context and what's going on in a dynamic way. Because once you pull something out of context, you can't actually understand how it's really working. And this is one of the things that happens with problematic language. People will say, but I don't think it's a problem. And almost any time somebody doesn't think a word or a phrase is a problem, it's because they're thinking about it either in a very decontextualized way or in a way that is specific to their context. It's not a problem for me. Therefore, it can't be a problem.
0: Right. And that shows up even though the words you just used, that's not what they're literally thinking in their head, but that's kind of how it manifests. So let's get more granular here because you unpacked a word that is definitely relevant for us here on Lead to Soar. You talked about defining the word professional and then moving beyond a dictionary definition to three different pieces here, the semantic frames, indexicality, and flavor. I wonder if you could just talk to our audience about this. Why do we need to go beyond the definition of a word like professional? How does this look in the work that you do?
1: Sure. So the word professional, also a word that I believe is of interest to your listeners, is a phrase is executive presence is probably another one, right? Where there are words that feel like they have a comprehensible definition, but are in fact are very ambiguous. What in my field you might call underspecified, they can be filled in in different ways. And so the problem with professional is that people will use it. Let me pause and say, there's a, a phrase that I really like that I can't figure out who said it first. I can't attribute it to somebody. Don't give me credit for it, but it's Ambiguity is the door that bias walks through, right? So anytime you've got a very ambiguous phrase, especially in something like a performance review or manager feedback more loosely or describing somebody, anytime you've got something that's very ambiguous, bias finds a way to color what's going on and shift it into the negative for people against whom there's bias. In this case, there's gender bias. So in the book, I've got an example. All my book examples are real, and I just have changed names. So I've got an example where a Black woman in tech who I interviewed told me about a time, I have these leading stories that never say, tell me about a time about bias. But I'm like, tell me about a time that you were treated as lower than or less than or or shown to be lacking in some way that felt inappropriate to you. And so more than one of them have stories about hair, black hair. This person had decided because this company said, oh, diversity, inclusion, equity, come bring your authentic self. She's like, all right, you know what? I'm gonna stop straightening my hair. I'm gonna stop show up with European style hair and I'm gonna show up with natural hair. Uh, Very groomed, very clean, very careful. And she did this great presentation and her boss pulled her aside afterwards and said, how could you show up like this in front of clients? You're so unkempt. You look so unprofessional. Basically, you seem unprofessional, right? And so this person, her boss, who I think I'm calling Rebecca, did her what she thought was a favor and said, you need to adhere to certain norms of professionalism. And so I have these different tools. I think it's too much for just a podcast to explain all of them, let me talk about one of them, which is I think the easiest to pick up on, which is flavor. Uh, I think that'll give enough for the example here. Flavor is a concept that comes from a scholar named Bakhtin. If you didn't grow up with a a K the way I did, I give you permission to say Bakhtin with a K. Don't worry about it. So Bakhtin had this idea of flavor where words are a lot more than their dictionary meaning. So he understood through his research that Every time you encounter a word, it starts to taste of the context. So here's that importance of context again. So who said it or who wrote it, where they were, what they were talking about, what their relationship was with you, their emotions at the time. Every single time you encounter a word, it kind of snowballs into having more and more of a particular flavor. Some words have a very neutral flavor like the or table. But other words get a lot more loaded and professional is one of those words that's loaded because here in the US and many other countries that are colonial or have um, colonial as in they were colonized or colonial as in they were colonizers. There is a conflation of being professional and behaving in a way that's white, the flavor of professional is white, and even more specifically. The flavor of professional is white, male, and at least middle-class socioeconomically or higher. And speaking the standard dialect for the region. When I do my research on professionalism, all four of those are what comes up. So for the many people, the flavor of professionalism from the get-go, the flavor of being professional locks out people who don't belong to those categories, people who aren't white and don't have European-styled hair people who aren't male and aren't behaving in ways that are considered masculine. P.S. I know we all know that when people who are perceived as women behave in masculine ways, it's not like that goes great either, right? People who aren't behaving in in middle-class or upper ways and people who aren't socioeconomically from high-ranking groups, right? And so long story short, When you have a word that the dictionary definition is just very neutral, but the flavor is always white male, white male, white male, white male, and you reprimand somebody whose behavior was impeccable, whose work was impeccable, whose clothes clothes were impeccable, whose hair was so nicely, cleanly done, and say she's not professional because she's not adhering to a standard of whiteness, that's one of the ways that language is problematic and gives us an insight into the ways that certain people's advancement is blocked and other people's advancement is given a tailwind. And so here again, we have that mushroom versus what's underneath in the context. In a dictionary, professional is fine, right? It's got a perfectly lovely meaning. But when you start putting it into context, you start to, at least in the U.S., actually many other places. My research is really U.S. focused. But in many places, what we start to see is that professional becomes an explicit way to implicitly get across that whiteness is not being adhered to, and that people aren't behaving in ways that mimic the dominant group. Therefore, their behavior is unacceptable, even though that has nothing to do with performance, performance quality, other ways that you might define professional, handing things on on time, showing up on time, et cetera.
0: After you raise awareness on something like this with a client, what kind of steps are you asking them to take after that point? So for a lot of my clients, I have a three-word mantra
1: that actually has been getting uptake lately. People are like, oh, we've been saying this. I'm like, oh. So I say, make it regular, make it granular, and make it external, right? So by regular, I mean, apply it the same way to everybody, So, for example, going back to the idea of what's professional hair, I have many examples where someone of African descent is told that their hair is unseemly, unprofessional, unacceptable, but a white person with hair that's dyed a bright color is considered acceptable. So there's that kind of double standard that's going on. So I'm saying make it regular. Make it granular. I started this whole discussion by saying, ambiguity is the door that bias walks through. How can we interrupt bias? By finding when it's ambiguous and working to make things less ambiguous. So instead of you having this sort of umbrella term, which isn't useful and can be used in such biased ways like executive presence and professional, you make it granular. And if you're gonna talk about somebody's behavior, performance achievement, you list, here are the specific components listen to client concerns, respond within this amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. So that can be for hiring is one of the areas where this comes in. Oh, she wasn't professional because she had on bright red lipstick and big hoops. An engineer didn't get hired. She was Latina and had on bright lipstick and big hoops. And they're like, eh, she's not professional, said the all-male team that didn't hire her. Well, she was super, super qualified for the role, right? And if they had been sticking to an anti-bias or a bias-informed interview protocol. They could have written a job requisition and interview questions and had post-interview discussions that were granular. And then external is just the idea of take it out of your head and make it external. So you've got a consensus so people can have a discussion. And I know that you work on this too, with consulting and workshops and lead to SOAR. And so this is the thing. It's like, we take it piece by piece. Where is a place that a problematic idea that comes out in this problematic word, professional, where are the places that it's having the most problematic effect? So I'd say work allocations, hiring, promotions, performance reviews, succession planning. Those are the biggest places that non-inclusive language or ambiguous language can sneak in and cause problems. There are good studies that show that when you interrupt bias with specific things and you make things external, granular, and regular, that people will make good decisions, that the bias starts to fall out really pretty quickly.
0: I want to ask you to unpack this idea of language ideology.
1: Language ideology, I hinted at it when I mentioned professionalism when I said standard dialect. So language ideology is a nice fancy term from linguistic anthropology and related fields. It's the ways that we think Think about and value and talk about languages and language varieties, which are often dialects, but they might not be dialects. A language variety might also be a mixture of two languages. So here in the US, a very common one is called Spanglish, where people will talk in both English and Spanish at the same time. And in many countries where people are bilingual, this happens a lot. So with language ideologies, when it comes to inclusive language, one of the things that's most important to me is what language varieties are seen as high value and what language varieties are seen as low value so back when i was in grad school people would run these tests now in tech they run a b tests all the time they would run a b tests on language ideologies and they would take bilingual speakers and have them read the same passage in one language in another language. And then they would ask questions as if they were different people because people would think they were different people. And so it's the same exact person. And you would say, is this person intelligent? And rank them on the scale. Is this person nice? Rank them on a scale. Would you trust them to be your doctor? Would you want them to be your neighbor? And what would happen again and again is the language ideologies would come through. So the dominant language would be seen as scientific, technical, intelligent, valuable, and then the language that was not dominant. So a minority group language that was not as high valued would be seen as less intelligent, but friendlier. So more like homie, someone you might trust, but not someone you would trust to do like a scientific experiment. So there are ways that we can get at language ideologies and they show up in the workplace. So speaking of gatekeeping, what happens very often is that There are ideologies of what an intelligent person sounds like, and we go right back to a male person speaking the dominant variety, and the dominant variety is associated with socioeconomics and and capital cities. So here's my linguistics professor moment. So it's not random what dialect of the language or languages you speak became the dominant language. This is the language standard. It's based on the capital city. Like it's Parisian French. It's high class blended English, right? I should have done more research on Australian dialects. It's not random. It's the people with power and money and the way that they spoke became considered the standard. So the problem is that these ways that we think about and value or devalue language come right into the workplace. And people who speak with an accent are considered hard to understand. People who look foreign are considered hard to understand. There's this great study from a while ago now, I'm gonna say maybe 15 years, maybe more, where they had somebody read a lecture and they showed two different pictures to students, a white woman and an East Asian woman. And students literally had a harder time understanding the lecture when they were looking at a photo of an East Asian woman and reported that she was hard to understand when it was an absolutely standard dialect and literally exactly the same thing. So anytime we're going to make a value judgment about somebody, their intelligence, their professionalism, their competence, their capacity, and we're basing it on, do they speak a low prestige dialect? Do they speak with what we would call a foreign accent? Do they sometimes have words from another language that comes in? All of these ways are honestly biased and they are should be distinct from how we evaluate somebody's competence and performance. Again, it really gets mushed together.
0: I want to add a little story to that. So we just recently had our Lead to Source Summit here in the U.S. and we had a speaker on the panel. And if I remember her story correctly, she is a woman of color and her family immigrated to the United States And she doesn't look like a standard white person, obviously. And she talked about how she goes out of her way to speak English loudly because she has that understanding from years of bias that oftentimes the assumption will be that either she can't speak English or she can't speak it without an accent. and she also recalled how the sort of conditioning that she had growing up was that because her parents couldn't speak English or couldn't speak English well, they must not be smart. That sort of conditioning is not an accident. Uh, Two stories on that.
1: One is that I had an ag tech client that was opening A technologically advanced agricultural thing in an area that was filled with many Spanish-speaking immigrants. And I said, hey, one of my very best students at UCLA, her parents were migrant workers. At the time that she was my student, they were out in the field and she was brilliant. I thought she was dressing nerdily. And then when I found out, I'm like, oh, I think that's literally, she just doesn't have the money to buy clothes that fit. I thought she was just doing like, oh, nerdy, I don't care. And then I'm like, oh, maybe, but... And I was like, if my brilliant student, did she come from nowhere or what are her parents in the field? Like, is anyone treating those people going up and down California, picking crops seasonally? Is anyone treating them as if they're intelligent? I'm going to say probably not. I was like, so please don't go into these places making assumptions about people because they only speak Spanish and you don't, or because they come from a very indigenous area. So they speak Spanish and look indigenous. It's no reflection on their competency. The other thing I'm going to say, and this is a U.S.-specific story, and I'd be curious, maybe afterwards, Australian people can tell me if they have parallel stories for Australian First Nations and Indigenous people. Multiple Black people that I've spoken to here in the U.S. have a command of standard English, right? Speak in a way that when you don't see them, you might interpret them as being white. And so they've had phone screeners and they have a name that's ambiguous, let's say Jane Jackson. I'm switching the name of the person who most recently told me the story. And then they show up for an interview and the person comes out with the clipboard and says, Jane Jackson. And she says, that's me. And the person has been expecting a white woman and has said, this person more than once, this person I'm calling Jane Jackson, more than once had said to her, are you sure? Are you sure you're Jane Jackson? And she 100% understands, oh, you didn't think I was black because I sounded white to you on the phone as if there's a white monopoly on standard dialect ways of speaking. And so I don't know that she's gotten any of those jobs. I should check in with her. I don't know that she's gotten any of those jobs when somebody was so shocked that they couldn't stop the very illogical thing from coming out of their mouth, right? So they didn't say, oh my God, you're black but are you sure is
0: like second place? You know, it's pretty close. I know this is going to sound familiar for some of our listeners. Okay. I want to get into an exercise that you've got here in the oh, book. Great. You really read this book. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited. I sent you the e-galley, like you're really in it. Yeah, it's great. So I just want to read this little portion because I think When our listeners hear this, they're going to hear words in their head, and then I'd like to ask you to unpack it. So our ideas about gender extend way beyond a person's body or appearance. Here's a quick experiment. Name a masculine food. Now name a feminine food. Was it masculine steak and feminine salad or tofu? Name a masculine drink. Now name a feminine drink. Name a masculine color. Now name a feminine color. And it goes on a bit more, but tell us what's happening here. There are a few things happening. One thing is that I think people don't
1: recognize how oriented we are towards gender. And in linguistic anthropology, the word we're going to use for this is salient. How salient is gender as a category? How programmed are we? to see the world according to gender and in particular, a gender binary. I mean, I was raised absolutely believing that there were two genders, male and female, and there's a lot of unlearning I've had to do in the last few decades to come to grips with what's the actual reality. And from the cradle, if we think that we know the gender of a baby, we will start speaking differently, pre-verbal babies. So little babies, are spoken to, okay, who gets told you're so strong? You're so smart. I don't have to tell you. Who gets told you're so pretty, you're so well-behaved? That kind of what I call cultural programming in the book, it's also known as socialization. We have these expectations about what's appropriate, what's normal, what's standard, what's expected, what's just regular for a given gender and for boys it's being strong and powerful and doing things being active right and for girls it's being pretty and well behaved knowing when to sit there and be looked at and that your value is in how you look and in providing emotional labor and probably physical labor for male people around you and young people and old people regardless of gender but part two of what's happening there in that I, at the at the end of that exercise I say, P.S. I mean, I don't say P.S., but however I wrote it more elegantly, I say, hey, are are these equally valued? Which of these is considered neutral or for everybody? And which of these is considered specific? So you might get made fun of for consuming it, especially if you're not seen as female. Right. So the answer is that female stuff is consistently cross-culturally and across time seen as lower value and lower prestige. And let me give you an example for naming. So names only go one direction, right? So names that are considered boys' names may eventually become names for multiple genders. And then they've become so stigmatized because they are softly girly, girly, just girly is an insult, right? Boyish versus girly. I mean, here we go, right? That they end up only feminine and you can see that happen over time. I think the only exception is when it comes to religion. So my students at UCLA would tell me about like Guadalupe, like there's a famous Virgin of Guadalupe can be a boy's name, usually a middle name, and uh Marie in French also so Jean-Marie for the Virgin Mary. So the Virgin Mary has the power to get a boy's middle name feminine. But other than that, there's only one direction and also Like uh, women wearing men's clothes, as long as they're not too masculine, is seen as hot, right? Hot. But men wearing women's clothes, traditionally, I've studied a lot of comedy, is seen as comedic or subversive or wrong in some way. So you can see that misvaluation. And so this is why when we're trying to advance in the workplace and be seen as, as valuable as we are, the fact that from infancy... Our competencies are misrecognized or devalued is really problematic.
0: I won't go down this rabbit hole, but I do want to say that I've seen even very progressive parents just like very unaware of the language differences that are happening. And it's really kind of crazy if you step back and think about it to sit there and call any toddler, like, oh, you're so, you know, you're so strong. Like, Okay, we're embedding a message. I mean, that's not true in the moment. You know, that's really not the case for a toddler. But the idea gets infiltrated into their little minds about who they are and how they are in the world. Anyhow, can I just jump in? I know you're anyhowing, but I want to jump in one step further.
1: I have a collection of onesies. So a onesie is for a preverbal child, right? Unless I can't imagine a onesie on a superverbal child. And I show onesies in workshops and in intro workshops. And I say, who's this onesie for? And what's the meaning? And sometimes people are like clutching their head. It's like, they're they're like, this can't be true. You have, they're incredibly sexualizing. And it's like the boys can't be held back. And then the girls have to be protected from terrible boys. This is like literally, and also gender reveal cakes. Well, it's like girls watch out. There's so much of this stuff that is normalizing Sexual predation and uh, being predated upon. And by the way, that is a workplace issue. So I'll just leave it there. Not the onesies, but the rest of it.
0: Right, right. Talk to us about linguistic distortion.
1: So, linguistic distortions are at the heart of what I do. So, I, I talk about linguistic distortions in my chapter called Reflect Reality. So, that's my first. I have six principles of inclusive language that I go through in the book. So my approach to inclusive language isn't, here's an identity, here's what you should or shouldn't say to people who are members of that group. I don't go through the list. Instead, I'm coming from a linguistic anthropology perspective and saying, what are universals of human behavior? Where do things go awry in interactions? What? How do they go wrong? And I have six principles. I'm like, if you follow these principles with your language, you're doing great. And then please don't do the reverse of them. So my first one, reflect reality, is a big one. And I talk about a few linguistic distortions in there. Language is our interface to the world, especially for deaf children who are denied language for much of their lives until some of them for a very long time, if they're given cochlear implants that don't really work or if they're told to lip read instead of, they end up with all kinds of cognitive deficits and have problems in school because Language is such an important way to interact with the world. It's the way that we organize the world around us. It's the way that we sort the world into categories. And it's the way that we assign value to categories and to things within the categories. So here's the category of gender, right? So male, masculine, and then value, female, feminine, and value or lack of value. So I'm particularly interested in the ways that the language that we use affects our mental models. It doesn't, doesn't just reflect the ways that we're thinking, but actually gives feedback and affects our mental models. I'll give you um, a super brief example. I was recently on an art trip with a friend of mine who is very sophisticated. She's a professor at Stanford, but we were talking about how also Gen X like me. So she said that she was told that her aunt's female friend was her roommate. And she was literally in her late thirties when she was like, oh, they were in a romantic relationship, but that word had distorted her mental model. And if if it had been described differently, she might've had a clearer understanding of how often people were in lesbian relationships, how, I mean, there are so many things about the world that were made unclear because of that non-reflection of reality. Technically, yes, this person was her aunt's roommate, but it was her lover who would have been her wife and maybe now might be her wife. So I'm particularly interested in linguistic distortions that affect people from historically marginalized or disrespected or stigmatized groups. So in particular, I think you wanted to talk about masking language is sort of the overarching one. So Masking language is my name for a distortion that pretends that the way it is for the dominant group is the way it is for everybody. So there's a thing, and this happens again, cross-culturally. So I said that a specific dialect belonging to wealthy people in a capital city becomes the standard dialect. It's the same way for other kinds of aspects of human life, right? So the way that it is for people in the dominant group is assumed to be the standard, a universal for everybody. And so we hear this a lot in the workplace where people will say, let's keep it neutral, or that's just PC, or let's keep it professional. And what they mean is, let's mask the fact that things are okay for only some of the people. Let's pretend that because things are okay for the people in power, that they're okay for everybody. And so to my mind, that's one of the most dangerous linguistic distortions because it takes off the table the ability to reflect reality and to speak with clarity and precision in a regular, granular, externalized way. What are real problems that are happening that are adversely affecting people in your workplace?
0: Okay. You're jogging in my mind a discussion uh, that Michelle and I had a while ago trying to answer a question for someone where they encountered something challenging at work, and it the question's kind of there of, do I go to HR or not? And it strikes me that this type of masking language that you mentioned, let's keep it neutral, we need to just keep it professional, PC, whatever, is a way that someone who's not part of the dominant group, their experience is diminished and even denied. I wonder if you might give us a specific example that you've encountered where this masking language comes up and then what leaders need to be aware to do to intervene to prevent this from happening.
1: Sure. I think that the nicest example is actually the one on the put in the book because it's the nicest example that's the easiest to understand. So I used to be part of a listserv for people who do diversity, equity, inclusion work. A person wrote and she's like, oh, I'm having a problem. She was reasonably new at a company that was distributed throughout the US. And she was based in California and then offices were in other states as well, including states that you might characterize as more conservative. And she was trying to get the, Calendar to reflect reality, right? So here's Diwali, here's Yom Kippur, here's Hispanic Heritage Month, here's Women's History Month, here's this thing, you know. So when you're planning things, either planning something celebratory, or let's learn more about this group, or hey, don't schedule that conference for Yom Kippur. I was once invited to uh, give a talk at a diversity conference, and I'm like, yeah, that's Yom Kippur. Like, why are you even holding a conference? I'm like, I will not be part of a conference that's on. A major, major holiday for a world religion, like unacceptable, but from the get go. So anyway, she got pushback from people and she couldn't figure out how to respond. They were like, oh, we appreciate your candor, but we need to keep things neutral, or let's not put politics in this. Or by the way, candor is a way the thing that suggests that the things that she was talking about were in some way embarrassing. Like you talk about candor when somebody's talking about something maybe a little bit shameful. Oh, I have got this illness or I have this past thing that happened that's embarrassing. Oh, I appreciate your candor. Not I'm putting holidays from other world religions into our calendar, right? So I said, oh, this is a great example of masking language. And I gave this example and I got so many responses from people, especially people who weren't white I got so many responses that I'm like, okay, this is something I need to start writing up. So in the book, I say, you know, in the U.S. and thus for really a lot of the world also, the quote unquote neutral calendar, the secular calendar isn't secular. It's a Christian calendar, right? So if people from other religions other than Christianity want to attend, go home for, or attend a major holiday holiday, they have to take time off a lot of the time, right? Or if they want to go to mosque on a Friday, or if they want to leave early to go to Jewish temple on a Friday night, or all of these different things, it's considered extra. But if you're Christian and you want to go to your house of worship and you work at a, an office with regular office hours, you can go any Sunday and nobody's going to know anything because the Sunday is off. If you want to take the most major holidays off, Christmas and Easter, you're always going to get them off. Easter's always on a Sunday, but Christmas will always be off. The dating system, AD, is not neutral. It's Christian, Anno Domini, Year of Our Lord. The dating system, BC, is not neutral. It is before Christ, right? So in all of these ways, the calendar that they were complaining about and saying, we need to keep it neutral, isn't neutral. It's just a dominant group calendar. And so that's why I like to be very precise and very specific with language to show that there are sometimes logical fallacies involved right and somebody's like let's keep it neutral and it's like it's not neutral it's neutral it's just your group and your group happens to hold the power so that's my favorite example because i just think it's very clean and also i think so many people haven't thought about calendars and for them a calendar is just a a thing
0: thank you so much for joining us here on lead to soar for this discussion and, and going into your book where can people find you and your book? Okay. The best way to find me as, and my book is at my website,
1: SuzanneWertheim.com. So my name is hard to spell, but you can probably see it if you're listening to this podcast. So that's the best place. And then a lot of people like to follow me on LinkedIn and or subscribe to my newsletter because I give away free inclusive language tips and tricks and analyses in both of those places. I post pretty regularly. That's how you found me with the double standards inflating language. And then um, twice a month, I have a newsletter on the 15th. It is a regular newsletter where I analyze something topical. And then on the first of the month, I answer a reader's anonymized question. It's an advice column. So people write to me and then I anonymize the question. So get your questions answered for free. Subscribe to my newsletter.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosore.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.